Hi, I'm Grant Armstrong, and I get to serve as directing pastor here at St. John's United Methodist Church in Edwardsville, Illinois. We exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Our desire is to be a beacon of faith and service, focusing our passions and gifts to reflect Christ's love to the world. You're invited to join us each week at 9 a.m. for a time of traditional worship or at 11 a.m. for contemporary worship. Thanks for joining us for this online version of the sermon. Today's scripture is Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8 from the NLT, New Living Translation. Oh, my people, listen to my instructions. Open your ears to what I am saying, for I will speak to you in a parable. I will teach you hidden lessons from our past, stories we have heard and known, stories our ancestors handed down to us. We will not hide these truths from our children. We will, not, we will tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord, about his power and his mighty wonders. For he issued his laws to Jacob. He gave his instructions to Israel. He commanded our ancestors to teach them to their children. So the next generation might know them, even the children not yet born, and they in turn will teach their own children. So each generation should set up, should set up its hope anew on God, not forgetting his glorious miracles and obeying his commands. Then they will not be like their ancestors, stubborn, rebellious, and unfaithful, refusing to give their hearts to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I found myself sucked into a television vortex one evening that I'm pretty sure was instigated by my wife flipping through channels and landing on a show that my recent quick internet search informed me was called Rich Bride, Poor Bride. Has anybody heard of that program? I hadn't. This was probably my only exposure to it. I don't know the premise of the whole series. I really don't care to. But this specific episode showed a wedding coordinator delivering a wedding cake in some sort of contrived uh, fashion where the assistant was tasked with carrying the wedding cake into the reception event. And in an uh, an episode that appeared to look like nothing short of a Chevy Chase channeling Gerald Ford doing a, a pratfall, the assistant took a wonderful spill and drops this beautiful wedding cake on the ground with a splat in a way that makes it utterly unrecoverable. But don't worry for the couple. Don't worry for them. Because when the coordinator called up the bakery, the bride and groom were smart enough to purchase something called cake insurance. You heard that right. Cake insurance. They paid to have a backup cake at the ready just in case the wedding coordinator on a nationally syndicated show would have some sort of obvious accident and ruin the cake at the last minute in front of a live audience. I can typically pick up on product placement in shows, but this product placement was so niche and to use a person acting as an inept assistant in this clear ploy to frighten brides into believing that their day could be utterly ruined if they don't spend extra money on cake insurance. Now, I know I was not the target demographic for this show, but that was insulting to my intelligence. Plus, statistics show that the way the couple serves one another cake is a much stronger indicator of future marital strife than if the cake drops on the ground. You can look that up. It's important to keep our eyes on important things. 
when we are talking about trans transmitting, transporting important items. When we're given the responsibility for making sure that something important makes its way to its intended destination, it would be great if everything had that kind of insurance plan. It would be great if everything had that kind of backup in place. I, it was after Good Friday of this year, once everyone was gone from the service, I was transporting some of the things I had out for Holy Week back to my office. And I was oh so carefully carrying my paten, the plate, the pitcher, the chalice that we had on the table for Holy Thursday, and I was taking it back to my office, and I walked outside those worship center doors, and for some reason, the handle of the door hit my hand just right, so that the chalice started to spring forward from my hand in a way that seemed to make time move more slowly. Now, this was a custom set that I received as a commemoration for a, a special achievement. And in those slow motion moments, I could think through my possible different responses. Now, I could lose my sure grip on the pitcher and the plate in order to try to possibly salvage the chalice, but that was a risk. I could try to throw my own body underneath the chalice to try and break the fall, but I'm pretty sure at this age I would start to break myself instead. What I did was repeat aloud, no, 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 as the ceramic chalice hit the hard industrial carpet and shattered all over the place. There wasn't a reality TV show to prepare me for that event, and so it never occurred to me to purchase chalice insurance. Live and learn, I guess. And we're given this sacred responsibility to make certain a fairly precious thing is delivered intact to a specific destination. There are countless obstacles and perils that could prevent its safe passage, and there's not really a backup plan. There's us. And if we don't carry that responsibility well, there's no insurance to replace what's been dropped. And not to put too much pressure on us, but it's lives and eternities that are shattered when we fail. That kind of pressure could make us want to avoid the task altogether. Who needs that kind of stress in their lives? But our inaction can be just as harmful as our careless delivery. When it's faith that we're passing on to a new generation, and it's the future of Christianity that God has given us as our destination, shirking from our responsibility is not the answer. The fact is, we have something precious to deliver. It's too precious to neglect. It's so precious that it's worth delivering with great care. And it's not just a job for some of us. It's a job that God has given to all of us. And that takes us to our first lesson this morning. To be a part of the relay, we have to put ourselves into the race. To be a part of the relay, we have to put ourselves into the race. The psalmist writes, Oh, my people, listen to my instructions. Open your ears to what I am saying, for I will speak to you in a parable. I will teach you hidden lessons from our past, stories which we have heard and known, stories our ancestors handed down to us. The psalm is the second longest psalm in the whole book of Psalms, and it's just after Psalm 119, which is an epic acrostic. It's categorized in part as a historical psalm, but it's not like other psalms in that category. Most historical psalms have similar themes. Remember what God has done, Here's an example of our people's history to show whence we've come and the character of the God we serve. 
But this specific passage spends some time with introductions to the history section. That's one of the big differences in this psalm. It sets itself apart like a Proverbs or some other sort of wisdom literature. It basically says, listen up if you want to be wise. There are some mysteries that I'll reveal to you, but you have to tune your ears to hear. That's the parable part the composer of this psalm is talking about. History is the telling of events, but this psalm is intended to invite us into the story. The parable tells something with less of an eye on factual accuracy and more of a focus on how the story helps the audience confront the existential challenge at work in the text. It's less about, here's what happened, and it's more about, here's what happens, so what are we going to do about it? The emphasis is on how we live out the lesson, not just a call to remember or to think about it. In this passage, the method and the message are very closely intertwined. The task is to pass on the stories of God's power and might, understanding that bad things can happen if we forget our God. And we receive that challenge in the context of stories about God's power and might and the things that can happen if we forget about the Lord. The psalmist sets these historical lessons in a musical setting for use in worship so that the stories of the people can be remembered using a mnemonic device of song. That is how I memorized the Ten Commandments and the, uh, the fruits of the Spirit was by helping preschoolers to learn those things in the setting of songs. And it's how I still remember them to this day. If you ask me which commandment is which, I will start to hum in my head and that's how I'll get to it. The Psalms basically function like a hymnal for the ancient Jewish worshipers. And this would be a part of their communal gathering and religious life. When they gathered, they remembered. And they did it partly through music. Simply by singing these songs, they were joining in the act of telling the stories of the faith so they wouldn't be lost to future generations. They made themselves a part of the relay by lifting their voices in praise and by doing so together in ways that included grandparents and children and grandchildren. Now, I imagine the folks in 1000 BC had their favorite psalms that they hoped the song leader would break out for their gathered worship, but their musical preferences were not of God's concern. I really hope we get that because some people still don't understand that the battles that church folks have fought over musical styles never had any winners. You know that? The battles that church people fought over musical styles never had any winners. It was all losers in that. Just a lot of people who witnessed contention and walked away from petty and bickering churches. Those battles have no winners. We simply have to get over that kind of stuff. Because what is God's concern in this? It's that the people who claim to be of God do whatever it takes to make sure that the knowledge of his ability to save and set free would not be forgotten and lost. There's too much at stake. Our focus has to remain on things that truly matter. So we're invited into this story. That's why when we worship, we're not just an audience witnessing a performance. We're all teachers and students singing out the power of God. That's why we might just look through the study guide questions to show that these words aren't just something to think about for an hour, but something to live out for the sake of eternity. And it's partly for our own spiritual benefit. It's certainly for the glory of God, but it's also for the sake of those eyes that we don't even realize are watching. Watching for our example. 
determining whether or not these stories of faith are really important. They won't learn it from what we say so much as what they see. If it's important to us that God's story of salvation is known to more people in future generations, those little eyes are going to see it. They'll also see if it's not important, and they're going to follow our example more than they follow our advice. That takes us to our second lesson this morning. We'll be held responsible for hiding Jesus from future generations. We'll be held responsible for hiding Jesus from future generations. We will not hide these truths from our children. We will tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord, about his power and his mighty wonders. For he issued his laws to Jacob. He gave his instructions to Israel. He commanded our ancestors to teach them to their children so the next generation might know them, even children not yet born, and they in turn will teach their own children. One of the more fascinating things that I've seen on the internet recently is an online community of committed secular and atheist parents trying to figure out how to cope because their kids have discovered veggie tales and they've started to believe in God. One of my favorite examples of this was a parent who is disturbed because their child, who used to be scared through the night, one morning woke up and came out and proudly expressed that they were not scared anymore because God watched over them while they were sleeping. And the parent is worried because he doesn't believe in God and doesn't want to have his child comforted by false assurances. Another in the group says they don't want to force any religion down their kids' throats and that when they're older they can choose to believe whatever they want, but they're finding that philosophy difficult to maintain because their kids started believing in God because of veggie tales and now they want their kid to stop watching because it actually, they really just don't want their kids to believe in God. Now parents can do whatever they want. Atheist and secular parents can do as they please. They see Bob the Tomato as some sort of subversive indoctrination into an anti-boogeyman deist cult for kids. That's fine. They're at liberty to do what they believe is right. But I do wonder why Christian families would hide God from kids. I mean, part of this passage is an instruction to the community of faith, all of us. Just like in Deuteronomy chapter 6, when God like this psalmist, is calling the people, all the people, to hear and to listen. Listen, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. You must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed, when you're getting up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. We all have this responsibility for passing on the faith. But this really does place an emphasis on parents. Repeat them to your children. Don't hide this from your children. Teach them to your children. This really does seem like a big deal to God. So yes, Sunday school teachers are a part of that. Children's moments are a part of that. Youth group is a part of that. Sermons are a part of that. But parents are given the lead role here. And I get it. Our schedules are hectic. We're constantly running. There are countless activities. We've got clubs, practices, private lessons, homework, and so on. We're in that. 
but a lot of us focus a whole lot of time and attention helping our kids build up resumes for college admission, for championships, for performances, for careers, and let's be real, we outsource a lot of that work. It's not usually a father and son just throwing around a ball in the backyard. It's not usually the family gathered around the piano and singing. It's often hiring out of skilled training for some good things, even really good things, that will fade. They might make their way into our obituary someday, but they won't make their way into eternity with us. And they're ultimately things that God did not command us to do. That can't cost us the things that God did command. And this is something that God has placed on us. And it's a lot more than head knowledge. Trusting in God, seeing faith as a priority, living a life that's reliant upon Jesus, that's something that's caught more than it's taught. And nobody gets it perfect. None of us. Our family has tried morning devotions together. We've done family worship nights together. We've done study guides together. We've done reading plans together, story Bibles when the kids were younger. They all did something. They helped to move the ball down the field a little bit, I suppose. None of it lasts as an enduring practice for one reason or another. And I don't think it's about having one consistent habit over time, but just living out the love of God that tries, that stumbles, that occasionally fails, and keeps putting the effort in by God's grace. It's not perfection that our kids need to see. They just need to see that it's important, that it makes a difference, that our lives are different because Jesus is a part of them. That's the stuff that we especially can't keep hidden from children. So when we tell the stories about God's power to save, we are a part of that story. It's not something that has happened. It's something that keeps on happening, and we get to make sure that future generations not yet born have a chance to be a part of that story as well. Our third lesson this morning, God's salvation stories are filled with warnings and wonders. God's salvation stories are filled with warnings and wonders. Verse 7, so each generation should set its hope anew on God, not forgetting his glorious miracles and obeying his commands. Then they will be not be like their ancestors, stubborn, rebellious, and unfaithful, refusing to give their hearts to God. So what is this important history lesson that God wants to make sure that we hear in this psalm? What does God want future generations to know? The psalm is a story about God's steadfast love that continued despite the rebellious forgetfulness of those who had seen God's miracles and power firsthand. It's a group that the psalmist refers to as Ephraim, one of the 12 tribes and the people who were associated with the northern kingdom of a divided Israel. So if Jerusalem and Judah were representing the faithful religious people of the south, Ephraim represented the disloyal northern kingdom that had abandoned temple worship and set up shrines to other gods, not the Yahweh God of Israel, who won for them their freedom. The psalm says this goes back to their liberation story. Even when they had seen God's power in setting them free from Egyptian slavery and captivity, these people complained. Even when God sent them through the Red Sea on dry ground, they rebelled. 
When God opened up rocks to gush water in the desert, they scorned. When God provided manna, sustenance from heaven, they demanded their favorite foods. They got what they wanted and still found God's presence in fire and smoke to be insufficient. And so God sent even deadly discipline against them. And they continued to harden their hearts against God. And they finally relented and repented and received forgiveness and then again forgot. And the cycle continued. The cycle started all over again. And it continued because, the psalmist says, the new generation were as faithless as their parents. They hadn't learned how to live in obedience. They had not changed. The system perpetuated the dysfunction. And even with God's ongoing provision and mercy and discipline, the cycle continued. Just as it so often does when we experience God's ongoing provision and mercy and discipline and yet forget about what God has done for us. The freedom that Jesus has won for us, the generosity of God's hand which we claim credit for, the ways that we turn our noses at God's presence so we can defend our preferences, that rebellion passes on through only so many generations before there cease to be generations to which we can pass it. But if we remember what God has done, if we take to heart the stories of what he did long ago, if we tell the stories of what Jesus is doing in our lives, if we sing the songs that proclaim the glory of God, and if we focus on sharing with a new generation, you know, there will always be a church. Jesus built it, and the church will break down the very gates of hell and death. The body of believers that exists upon the earth will not perish. God sees to that. What part do we play in making sure that this church is a part of that. That St. John's will endure for perhaps, perhaps another 200 years into the future. It's because we've done our part in this generational relay. It's because we haven't forgotten about our God. It's because the faithfulness of the Lord has overcome the stubbornness and rebellion of human hearts and has seen fit to let the good news of full, abundant, and eternal life be told through the people of this congregation. It's up to God to make sure that the body of Christ continues in power as the vessel of salvation to the world. That is our insurance. It's up to each of us to do our part so that the relay continues at St. John's beyond this generation by God's provision and mercy and discipline. That light will continue. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we are thankful for these stories of faith, stories that remind us that the hardships and challenges that we face today they are not new to us. There's nothing new under the sun. And yet, these cycles where we become forgetful, where maybe we're distracted and pulled away by so many other things, only to, at a certain point, be reminded to remember you, to know that you are the source of good in our lives, to know that you are the author of salvation, that you are the one who sent your son into the world to rescue us from sin and death and shame. Lord, in the face of all that goodness, how can we help but sing your praise? Tell the stories of your goodness. Lift up your name and make sure that the same news that we've received is good news. These same stories that have shaped our lives and one for us, salvation, 
to see to it that they get passed on to future generations. Thank you that we get to be a part of that. We thank you for the love that inspires it. And we are grateful for the gift of Jesus Christ who embodies it. All of this we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.